The Bay of Pigs invasion was, to coin a phrase, a train wreck. Fidel Castro had come to power in Cuba in 1959, planting a communist country right on America's back porch. Having a Soviet satellite 90 miles away from American soil was, shall we say, troubling. The Eisenhower administration approved a CIA plan to train Cuban exiles and provide them with weapons and air support for a surprise invasion of the island. The expectation was that the Cuban people would rise up in rebellion and topple the Castro regime. The train went off the tracks pretty early. Despite efforts to keep the mission a secret, the invasion plan was widely known among the Cuban community in Miami. Castro's intelligence service found out about the training camps the CIA had set up in Guatemala, and some of the details of the plan even made it into the press. Fidel Castro was not going to be surprised. President-elect John F. Kennedy was briefed on the plan after his election in 1960. He authorized the operation shortly after taking office, but changed the landing point for the invasion in an attempt to hide U.S. involvement, which by then was a fairly open secret. The American bombers sent to take out the Cuban Air Force, painted to look like Cuban planes, missed their targets, leaving Castro's air power mostly intact. Photos of the World War II-era B-26 bombers proved that the U.S. was supporting the invasion. The president canceled a second airstrike. The invasion force got bogged down on the beaches, and the Cuban Air Force destroyed the escort ships and half the exiles' air support. Castro counterattacked, sending 20,000 troops to the beach. President Kennedy ordered unmarked fighters to assist, but they arrived too late because of the time zone change between their base and Cuba and were shot down. The people of Cuba, by the way, did not rise up in rebellion. 1,200 survivors of the failed operation were taken prisoner. Some of the rest escaped back to the U.S., where in a ceremony a week later, they presented the president with the Doom Brigade's flag in a ceremony at Miami's Orange Bowl. He said that this flag will be returned to this brigade in a free Havana. President Kennedy took full responsibility for the failure, which now included over a thousand captives in Castro's hands. Fidel toyed with the fate of the prisoners, scoring victory after victory in the propaganda war between tiny communist Cuba and the massive imperialist United States. Every time he spoke to the captives or about them, he reminded the world of his triumph and America's defeat and embarrassment. It would be easy to execute you, he told the prisoners in April 1961, but it would only lessen our victory. The following month, the Cuban dictator suggested putting the prisoners on agricultural work gangs. This was the first inkling of his plan to use the captives to extort the United States. If imperialism does not want its worms to work, Castro said, let it exchange tractors and machinery for them. He decided that two or three million dollars worth of heavy farm machinery was proper indemnification for the havoc caused by the invasion and would serve as America's acknowledgement of its blunder. What is two million to Kennedy who has 200 million, Castro said? What does money mean to Rockefeller, whose bank accounts run into millions? Initial reactions from the Kennedy administration were not encouraging. A State Department spokesman said, communism in this hemisphere is not negotiable. International Diplomacy Safety Tip, number 257. If you're trying to figure out what to do next, send a spokesman to talk tough and buy time. Castro proposed sending 10 Bay of Pigs prisoners to the U.S. to negotiate the transaction. He seemed very interested in getting his shiny new tractors. Castro believed that his offer demonstrated generosity and restraint, considering that he was the injured party here but he really was in no position to respond either economically or militarily to the provocation of having his country invaded. All he had were the prisoners, 
a new and inexperienced president, and the moral high ground. Diplomatic relations between the United States and Cuba had been severed, so Kennedy looked to private citizens to do the deal with Castro. It would also eliminate any sense that the government was ransoming prisoners. But Kennedy, who had taken responsibility for the failed invasion, felt an obligation to the captives. Whatever it takes, let's do it, he said. I put those men in there. They trusted me, and they're in prison now because I effed up. I have to get them out. He asked Walter Ruther, president of the United Auto Workers, Milton Eisenhower, brother of the previous president and the president of Johns Hopkins University, and Joseph Dodge, former budget director in the Eisenhower administration, to form a committee to raise private funds to buy the tractors. He also asked former first lady and beloved international figure Eleanor Roosevelt to get involved. The Tractors for Freedom Committee established its headquarters in Detroit, where the tractors were, and claimed tax-exempt status as a nonprofit charitable organization. With Eleanor Roosevelt as its honorary chairperson, they started to raise the money. The reaction across the country was immediate. The idea of paying Castro's bribe was widely denounced. Parallels were drawn between French revolutionary demands for bribes in the 1790s. Millions for defense, but not one cent for tribute. Comparisons were also made with Neville Chamberlain's early appeasement in the face of German aggression pre-World War II. It was suggested that any concession to Castro would be a sign of weakness that Nikita Khrushchev could exploit when he met with Kennedy in June later that year. On the scale of exploitable weaknesses, a failed invasion of a sovereign nation was far worse than having a group of private citizens send some farm equipment to Cuba to save 1,200 lives. On the other side of the debate, the humanitarian argument was being made, one that aligned with the president's own feelings. Despite the failure of the Cuban invasion, a 1961 article in the Harvard Crimson said, and despite what one thinks of its intentions, the United States is directly responsible for the lives of the men it landed there. We sent them. We should bail them out. Some in the U.S. pointed out that the prisoners were not American citizens, and therefore there was no responsibility to save them. Others proposed a military operation to get them out, since that sort of thing had worked so well last time. Fidel Castro wasn't exactly looking like the aggrieved victim anymore. Most Latin American countries criticized the deal. Castro was called the Eichmann of the Caribbean, which harkened back to a Nazi offer to trade one million Jews for 10,000 trucks during World War II. A delegation of the Cuban prisoners met with the tractor committee. They weren't happy about the proposed deal either, but the alternative for them was lengthy incarceration or death. The specifics of Castro's demands were 500 Caterpillar Super D8 tractors, or their equivalent. They had to be new or in near-new condition and had to come with a five-year supply of spare parts. Castro had clearly done his tractor research. He also wanted the deal called an indemnification, not a prisoner exchange. Congress, predictably, lost its mind. Representatives wanted to charge the tractor committee with violating the Logan Act, which outlawed diplomatic action by private citizens. Others feared, not without some justification, that agreeing to the deal would inspire other dictators to ransom American prisoners. One senator called the deal the most fantastic thing since the Barbary pirates. Former President Harry Truman, another of my favorite lovable curmudgeons, weighed in, saying he didn't trust Castro any further than I could throw a bull by the horns, but said the United States had supported the invasion and had a responsibility to save the prisoners. The administration tried to keep its distance from the tractor deal. 
President Kennedy issued a statement saying that the government cannot be a party to these negotiations, but it could not prevent private citizens from embarking on a humanitarian project. Side note, the government was definitely a party, although an unofficial one, in the negotiations, and it could have easily prevented the humanitarian project from proceeding. The negotiations dragged on. On one side, there was still massive opposition to the deal and some clever attempts at stalling, while farming experts weighed in on the agricultural machinery needs of Cuba. This prompted the tractor committee to offer different types of tractors, which Castro refused, offering instead a prisoner exchange for other communist political prisoners throughout the world. The Republicans on the tractor committee started to worry about the public outcry against the deal. Dodge and Eisenhower wanted to end negotiations to avoid charges that the United States was being too soft with a communist. Milton Eisenhower sent a letter to Kennedy, admonishing the administration for not informing the public sooner about the deal, and that Kennedy should make it clear that the government was deeply involved in the negotiations and that the tractor committee was only doing the fundraising. Castro asked for an American delegation headed by Eleanor Roosevelt to come to Havana to finalize negotiations. She refused, claiming ill health and age. She was 77. But she also didn't want pictures of her with the communist dictator on the front pages of the world's newspapers, something that would be a huge propaganda victory for Castro. The committee instead sent a team of farm machinery experts to Cuba. The commission members had to avoid a citizen's arrest attempt at the Miami airport for violating the Logan Act, and Cubans who approached them at their Havana hotel asking for their help to escape the island. These experts offered a variety of lighter-duty tractors, trying to assuage fears that heavy-duty equipment could be used for military purposes or that they were actually intended for use in China or the Soviet Union. Eleanor Roosevelt said that 500 heavy-duty tractors could harrow all of Cuba in three days and that these types of tractors could only effectively be used in Siberia or central China. Castro changed his terms demanding a $28 million payout in cash or credit that could be used to buy whatever farm machinery he wanted. And he still insisted that the payment be called an indemnification, a concession of America's responsibility for the Bay of Pigs invasion. Ridiculous, Eleanor Roosevelt said. I don't believe the United States can be intimidated by Cuba. If the U.S. wishes to do a humanitarian thing, it should do it. In short, enough already. The Tractor Committee disbanded. Castro didn't give up. He told the prisoners that the United States wasn't going to send any tractors, but that they could send a delegation of captives to the U.S. to negotiate for their own release. He sent them with a list of tractors and other farm machinery that he would accept in exchange. Fidel Castro really wanted his tractors. Upon arrival, the prisoners were surprised to hear that the tractor committee was no more and asked to stay for a month and try and raise the $28 million Castro wanted for their release themselves. They were allowed to stay, but they weren't given the money that had previously been raised by the tractor committee, which by then was returning all donations unopened. 70,000 letters with donations would be marked return to sender. The delegation met with no success. Two of their number defected without any reprisals from Castro. The other eight went back to Cuba and captivity as they had promised the dictator. President Kennedy held a press conference where he announced that the negotiations his government had no involvement in were over because Castro had asked for equipment which could be used for other purposes besides agriculture. He concluded by saying, I wish the prisoners could be free, but as long as Castro kept being unreasonable, the situation will remain as it is.
In the end, the prisoners did get their freedom. In December 1962, James Donovan, a lawyer whom Castro respected, and with the Kennedy administration's support, negotiated the release of the commandos for $58 million in food and medicine, plus $2.9 million in cash. He also acknowledged the transaction as an indemnification for the Bay of Pigs invasion. As President Kennedy later wrote Eleanor Roosevelt, had the U.S. taken Castro's original deal, the prisoners could have been freed 18 months earlier at half the cost. The Bay of Pigs invasion, it would seem, wasn't the only train wreck in this story. Please consider giving our show a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some free episodes of the show that don't quite fit with the main narrative. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash history's train wrecks, and thank you. If you have your own ideas about how to pull off a secret invasion of a nearby island, or know why Fidel Castro wanted his tractors so bad, you can Twitter to add History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical trainwreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we'll go slightly north of Havana and catch back up with that rascal Huey Long, now a rambunctious United States Senator. Don't worry, he still retained iron-fisted control over the state of Louisiana, which may just bring him to a bad end. And if it did, it really needed to happen before he ran for president. Stay tuned for The Most Dangerous Man in America, Part 2. This episode is brought to you by the Valley Forge Project, a nonprofit organization trying to raise a billion dollars to accomplish two things. A constitutional amendment to eliminate all campaign and party donations, except by individuals capped at an annual limit, and another constitutional amendment limiting service in Congress to 12 years. They believe that the American political system, and by extension the American government, has been corrupted by money, partisanship, and seniority in office. They think these amendments are the first step in changing all that, and that it will take a majority of our citizens to put aside party affiliation and long-held political loyalties to get this done. Go to valleyforgeproject.org to see how you can help out.